Precious Father, we just want to open our hearts this morning and ask that you would speak to our hearts. We ask that you would make our hearts good soil, fertile soil, that the seed of your word can be planted and it can bear fruit in our lives. Lord, apart from you, we are nothing. Lord, there may be so many different distractions in our minds right now, so many different thoughts rolling around, but I pray that Jesus would take forefront and foremost of all of our thoughts now. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to move us, to compel us, to fill us with your love and to draw us closer to you. Please come close to us in this time. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Growing up, I always wanted to be a hero. I had dreams of maybe being a CIA agent, or maybe I could work for the police force, or maybe be a firefighter. These were the kind of careers that I dreamed about. I dreamed about maybe being a missionary and, and going like David Livingston to some far off villages in Africa, some way to be a hero. So sometimes this acts out in my life in ways that may not be the healthiest, I remember one day when we were up in Sacramento for a friend of mine's bachelor party. He was going to have his wedding the next day. We were at Denny's. Uh, we were having a very calm bachelor party. It was just, we went go-karting, and then afterwards we went to Denny's. And But by this time it was late. It was about midnight, and we're sitting there in Denny's in a not the best part of Sacramento, but we're sitting there, and I'm kind of in a daze because I don't normally stay up that late nor eat that late, so I was just sitting there kind of waiting for the food. And I was just looking off towards the cash register, which wasn't far from our table where we were sitting. We're sitting there and we're talking about different things, looking over there. There's a line of people there, some paying for their food, some asking some different questions. When all of a sudden the door of Denny's opens and in rushes a man. He rushes past all the people. The cash register is open. He reaches over and he grabs in the hundred parts of the part with a hundred dollar bills. And he just grabs a wad of the hundred dollar bills and jets out the front door of Denny's. I'm like, guys, did you see that guy? He just stole money from the cash register. They're like, huh? What? And I immediately just threw the chair back, ran out the front door of Denny's, and I'm running across the parking lot. And there goes the man across the parking lot. Uh, he has a head start on me, and he might have been faster than me too. I'm not sure. But I was chasing him across the parking lot, and I thought, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I know what I'll do. I'll tackle him in the parking lot and hold him until the cops come or something. And then all of a sudden, a car door swung open, and the this was the passenger side of a car, and a car started backing up, so he had an accomplice. He hopped in the car. The car was already headed off, and before I could get there, he drove out of the parking lot. So I stopped, not a hero, afraid I didn't do anything special except for make a big scene in the restaurant. My friend DeAndre Campbell comes running up to me. He says, what were you thinking? What are you doing? That was a few hundred dollars he had, and you don't know what he might have done to you. Oh, good point. You mean he might have hurt me? He said, I grew up on the streets, man. You don't do that kind of stuff. You let that kind of person go. It's not that big of a deal. He said, oh, okay. But I didn't learn my lesson because Lee and I, not long later, were in Bakersfield at a Walmart in Bakersfield. 
And we were there, we were checking out, and I was distracted again, kind of looking off towards the entrance. And this guy, you know, sometimes when you go out of Walmart, they'll check through your bags and they'll check it with your receipt to make sure everything's okay. Well, this lady was at the door doing the checking and she was seated in one of the wheelchair shopping carts. And she's there and a guy comes up with a cart and she begins to look through his cart and he begins to argue with her and they're going back and forth and pretty soon she grabs one of the bags out of the cart and he grabs the same bag and so they're pulling back and forth with the bag and I said, Leah, Leah, look at what's going on. She's like, oh, don't worry about it. But look, look, that guy's giving that lady a hard time. Well, this lady was taking her job very seriously. She wrapped her arm through that bag and he was just tugging on the bag until finally he's yanking on the bag and finally he pulls her out of her wheelchair. And at that point, when he sees what he's done, he takes off and he runs out the front door of Walmart. I said, here's my chance again. I can be a hero. So I started off and I ran out the front door of Walmart and I'm running across the parking lot, totally forgetting about the lesson that DeAndre taught me. But this guy was fast enough that I didn't catch him either. I've always wanted to be a hero. I've always wanted to make a difference. It's interesting what Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1. Thank you, Lexi, for reading our scripture this morning. I invite you to go there with me to Acts chapter 1. Just imagine what the disciples have gone through as we begin the, the story of Acts chapter 1. The disciples have, have followed Jesus for three and a half years, and they have specifically followed him as, as disciples who had given up their previous occupations for the last year or so of their ministry. And then they've seen Jesus go to the cross They've seen Jesus wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've seen Jesus buried in a tomb. But Acts 1 picks up the story in verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus gave instructions, he gave commandments, he, he taught his disciples all different kinds of things about the kingdom of God. Verse 3 continues, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. I've often wondered exactly what that looks like. We know some of the proofs where he showed up and he, he ate some fish and he ate some honeycomb. He showed up and he let doubting Thomas take his hand and place it in his side. But it says many infallible proofs that he showed up and and he showed them that he really was the risen Savior. He really was alive. He was their king that they could trust in. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Must have been an amazing time. Here, Jesus, their very best friend, the one who they had loved to follow, the one who they were willing to give up everything. They were willing to give up their fishing business. They were willing to give up their tax collector business. They just wanted to be close to Jesus. Here, he was resurrected. He was conqueror even of the grave. Not only had he raised other people to the, from the grave, but now he himself had been raised from the dead. And here he was. For 40 days, teaching the disciples and talking with the disciples, showing them things about the kingdom of God. What an incredible time that must have been. 
It continues in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. So he's going to explain what is this promise. Oftentimes it talks about the promise, the promise that was given to the disciples, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with what? With the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. John the Baptist had come. He'd been that voice in the wilderness preaching a, a message of repentance for the, the mountains to be laid low and the valleys to be lifted up. And he said, I come and I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying that baptism of the Holy Spirit is gonna, it's gonna happen not many days from now. So the disciples come to Jesus and they want to ask him a question. And it might be a question that you and I have been wondering about, especially with the things that are going on in the world around us today. We might be wondering something similar. Verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples still have something on their mind. They see Jesus as the Messiah who has come to free them from the Romans. And they say, Jesus, okay, you've done all these wonderful things. You've gone to the cross. You've explained. It says in Luke 24 that he opened their mind to the Scriptures and explained how all these things were in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Jesus, you've, you've helped us to understand all these things. Now, will you get rid of these dreaded Romans and set us up as kings so that we can rule over the world? They want to know, when is the end coming? Jesus, when are you going to do all this setting up of the kingdom that you've been talking about? When is this all going to take place? When is the end? Have you been wondering that at all lately? When you look at what's going on in the world around us, when you see all the chaos, nation fighting against nation, when you see the the economic turmoil, we see what's happening in our own stock market, We see what's happening in China. We see what's happened in Greece. We see all of these things going on and we say, how much more time could there possibly be? How could time keep going on? Surely things must be winding down. And there are a lot of people who are coming up with different kinds of theories. You know, there's the every seven years you have the year of Jubilee and different Christians now are pointing out that this year is a special year because we have four blood moons and we have the year of Jubilee that's coming to an end in September and oftentimes that's coupled with market collapses and all these different kind of things about what exactly is happening. And don't get me wrong. In the Bible, we have Bible prophecy. Daniel and Revelation that, that point us to specific events that take place in the end of time. And they're there for the purpose of helping us to draw closer to Jesus. They're there for the purpose of us warning people about what's coming on the earth. Warning that that things are coming to a head. That things are coming to an end soon. And people need to be right with Jesus. We want to make sure that our relationship with Jesus is right. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I've found that I can get distracted by these things. And pretty soon, I'm more worried about what the stock market is doing today or about what exactly is happening in the news or or how this lines up with some kind of uh, cyclical uh, prophecy that I have begun to construct. And pretty soon, I'm more worried about news events than I am about my relationship with Jesus. Maybe you haven't experienced that. 
But sometimes we can get so worried about when is the end coming and we can be thinking about what is happening with the end and we forget what it's all about. That's what had happened for the disciples. They want to know, Jesus, is it, is it time now for you to set up this kingdom? Are you finally coming to set up what we've been looking for this whole time? Jesus, when will it happen? I want to know the same thing. I want to ask God and say, when are you coming back? When are you coming back to take us home? I can't wait for that day. But look at Jesus' response. In verse 7, he said to, said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He says to the disciples, you're not needing to worry about this right now. Now, he was going to reveal some further things about the future. He told them in John 14 that the Holy Spirit, when he came, that he would teach them things to come. And that when he sent the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, he gave visions about things that were going to happen in the future. So God does reveal things that are going to take place. But here Jesus is saying, you're not going to know exactly when that day is going to come. And he'd said that in Matthew 24. You won't know the day or the hour. These things aren't revealed clearly to us. But Matthew 24 tells us of one specific sign, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But here he tells the disciples, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus doesn't want them just worrying about when this kingdom is going to be set up on earth. But Jesus does have something, something pressing on his heart, something urgent on his heart, something that he wants them worried about, something that he wants them thinking about, something that he wants them to be praying about, something that he wants to absorb their attention. So he says, don't worry about times and seasons. The Father's going to take care of that. He's got it in under control. It's under his authority. But... Verse 8 continues, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus, more than anything else, more than the end and the times and the seasons and all these things, what he's concerned about is that the disciples become witnesses, that they receive power through the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. That word there in the Greek is an interesting word. It's martus, from where we get our word martyr. Jesus is asking them, he says, I want for you to be martyrs. This was the burden on Jesus' heart. When you read at the end of each of the gospels in Matthew uh, 28, you have the, the Great Commission. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in my name. You have, at the end of Mark, he gives a very similar command. Again and again, Jesus' main concern is that the disciples become his witnesses. More than anything else, Jesus wants for the good news about all that he has done, he wants for that to become a living reality to the disciples that they share with the world out there. That is what is primary and foremost in Jesus' mind. If you go back to Matthew 24, hold your finger in Acts chapter 1. In Matthew 24, we read about all different kinds of signs that would take place at the end. 
Here, the disciples have asked Jesus a similar question, asking, when will the temple be destroyed? When will the end of the world come? When are these things going to take place? And Jesus tells them about wars and rumors of wars, about pestilence, and, and there will be signs in the heavens, and all these different things. But in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus gives the one crucial sign. The one thing that you and I can do something about. The one thing that isn't just about us watching the headlines, but the one thing that is primary on Jesus' heart. Matthew 24 and verse 14 says, In this gospel, this good news, you know that that word gospel, euangelion, it's, it's a word that was used when they would win a battle And a person came running back from that battle. They would send runners from the battle. He would come running to the city to let them know that they had just won the battle. That was called the Ungelion, the good news of victory, that someone had won a battle. So when this gospel of the kingdom, when this good news that, that I am victor, when, when you share the gospel, the good news about Jesus' victory, When this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a what? Witness. That's the same word there, except for this is in the the noun form, marturion. So again, where we get derive our word martyr from. This gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. And then what? Then the end will come. You know, Jesus isn't waiting on the Pope to set up certain things to take place in order for the end to come. Jesus isn't waiting for things to get bad enough on this planet in order for the end to come. What Jesus is waiting for is for people to accept the Gospel. For them to have an invitation to accept His love. That's why time keeps going on because Jesus wants you and I to have the opportunity to take this gospel, this good news to the entire world. He wants for you and I to be witnesses, to be martyrs. Go back to Acts chapter 1. So this term, martus or martyr, was actually used in the courts of the day. You would have a person who would come and they would be the witness in the trial. They would be the one who would share what they had seen for themselves. It's vital in trials that we have today. My brother is a deputy district attorney up in Sacramento. And it's crucial what happens when there's a witness on the stand. When he calls in a witness, he hopes that it's going to be that testimony that really confirms to the jury what took place. They want somebody that's going to be honest, somebody that's really had an experience, somebody that can clearly testify, I saw this and this is what has taken place. This is where this word that we use today, it's a borrowed word that we have in English from the Greek, martyr. It's really a Greek word that we've just transliterated and we now use it as an English word. But today, what does martyr come to mean to you? If I tell you that, that you're going to be a martyr, what do you think that's going to happen in your life? You assume that you're going to die because that's what ends up happening to nearly every single one of the apostles, as they bore witness to Jesus, as they took the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, the world hated them for it, and the world eventually put each of them to death for it. 
as they put that witness. In John, in Revelation 1 verse 5, he says, And I am here on the Isle of Patmos for the testimony, the witness, the martyrian of Jesus. Because I have borne witness about Jesus, that's why I'm here as a captive on the island of Patmos. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me. You will be martyrs. You will testify. You will reveal the love of God in such a way that the world will know that I have come and that I have won the battle. Incredible promise that Jesus gives to the disciples. I love how it doesn't say, and you shall go and do some witnessing for me. It says, you shall be witnesses. It uses the verb of being, a me, which means you're going to become. It's in the future tense. You're going to become a witness. This is who you are. You are going to become martyrs. You're going to become those that when people look at you, they're going to realize that you have been in contact with Jesus and that Jesus has changed your life. You're going to be my witnesses, my martyrs. But how does this take place? Because here the disciples are. He's talking to to men who have walked in his footsteps, men who have given up everything to be with Jesus, men who have seen him die on the cross. He's talking to men who know that he's been raised from the dead. He's talking to men that for 40 days he's given them infallible proofs about how he has risen from the grave. And yet, that somehow is not enough. You know, it's not enough for you and I to know that Jesus died on the cross in order to help somebody else come to that knowledge. It's not enough for you and I just to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if, if I come to you and I try to tell you about the Sabbath, and I, I have all the texts in the Bible lined out, and I can tell you from A to Z why the Sabbath is the seventh day and why you should be worshiping on, in church on the seventh day, something that the Bible is very clear about. I could tell you these things and still not be a witness. That's what this tells me. Because they had been at the feet of Jesus. They'd, been, they'd had their minds open to understand the Scriptures. They knew what Jesus had taught them. But yet that wasn't enough. What did they still need in order to become witnesses? The Holy Spirit. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That word there for power, it's a beautiful word, dunamis, from in English where we get our word for dynamite. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I think about being a witness to my own family, I think about those that don't know Jesus in my family. I think about my next door neighbors that I really would like to be able to be a better witness to. I think about my the barber when he cuts my hair and I, I wish that I could have a conversation with them that would leave them wanting Jesus. I wish that people, when they had come in contact with me, that, that they see Jesus' love so shining out of my, my face that they just want to know my God. Do you want that kind of experience with God? 
Sometimes it can feel impossible to have that, to have so much joy, so much love, so much peace that people really want to know Jesus because of the experience, the personal experience that you've had with Jesus. So I love how it says that you will receive power, dunamis, from where we get the word dynamite. It's going to be like dynamite in your life when the Holy Spirit comes in. Those mountains that you feel like are in the way, those, those problems, those issues, those things that you feel like keep you from being a witness to your neighbors, your friends, those things that you feel like stop you from being the powerful witness that you want to be. We were in Colorado just this uh, past two weeks ago, and we were headed on I-70 to take my nephew to climb Mount Evans. As you're going on I-70, we were headed towards Denver, uh, and we were on the uh, west side of Loveland Pass. And as you come along, all of a sudden you come up to this massive mountain, and you wonder, well, where's the freeway going to go? There's no straight way through. But all of a sudden, you come around a corner, and there is this hole in the mountain. And that hole takes you, and you go into it. I've tried to hold my breath through this tunnel, and it's... I haven't been able to do it yet. It's a very long tunnel. And you come out on the other side, and my little nephew, Daniel, is sitting next to me in the front seat, and he turns around and he looks up at that mountain behind us. He said, we just drove through that mountain. (laughs) It takes a lot of dynamite. It takes a lot of explosives to be able to get past the mountains in our lives, to be able to have that highway that's cleared for the coming of the Lord, like John the Baptist preached. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to become witnesses. It's something that we can't do on our own, but it's something that Jesus wants so desperately for you and me. What's it all about to be a witness? Let's go to 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John, John, the the same one who wrote the Gospel of John and who wrote the book of Revelation, talks about what it is that he's bearing witness to. I love how John again and again throughout his gospel, he talks about the testimony. He talks about the witness. He's constantly obsessed with this witness that he wants the people to be and the witness that Jesus was. In 1 John verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Okay, so keep track of the senses that are being used here. That which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it. We've borne witness and we declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John says, we're bearing witness of of that which we've actually put our eyes on. We've seen Jesus in the flesh. We've, we've actually touched and we've seen, we've felt, we've heard. This is real to us. This isn't just something that we've heard from somebody else, but this is a real experience. If I want for my friends, for my neighbors, for my family, for the community to want the relationship with Jesus that I have, it's got to be that real. It can't just be something that I know about, something that I intellectually can explain to somebody, but it has to be a real and living experience with Jesus. Something that is only brought to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It goes on in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Say, we've seen this, we've heard this, and we want for you to also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You know, the story is told about a boy who went into a park to do some witnessing. He had some books under his arm that he wanted to pass out to the people who were in the park. And he went up to one elderly gentleman who was sitting there on the park bench. And as he walked up to him, the man was reading a newspaper. And he went to to hand him a book when the, the gentleman, without even looking down from his paper, he said, what do you want, son? And so he started to explain, well, sir, I just have here, let me guess. You have a book, and he begins to set the paper down. A book that you want to give to me. Yes, yes, I do have a book that I want to give to you. I'm so excited that you want to... And let me guess, that book is going to tell me about God. It's going to tell me about Jesus and and how I should follow Jesus. Yes, sir, That I'm I'm so glad you know about this book. Have have you read this book before? Look, son, I have an entire library full of books at my house. I'm a very learned person, and I have an entire section of my library that tells me why that God that your book is going to tell me about doesn't exist. The boy was taken back. He didn't know how to respond. The man continued, and he said, Can you tell me this? If, if your God is real... Have you ever talked to your God? The boy smiled and he said, yes, yes, I've talked to him. Hang on a minute. Don't tell me about how at night you have your bedtime prayers. Don't tell me about, I want to know, have you ever had a real conversation with your God? The boy looked down at his toes. He said, no, I guess, guess I haven't had conversation like you and I talking right now said, well, see, that proves it. Your God is not real. Now, please leave me alone. I want to read the paper. So he puts his paper back up and begins reading. But the boy doesn't leave. And he's just standing there watching the old man. And before long, he says, excuse me, sir. The man looks down, says, okay, what is it? He said, can I ask you just one question? said, all right, make it, make it brief, son. He begins to ask him, he says, sir, have you ever had a toothache? The, the gentleman just shakes his head and says, yes, I've, I've had a toothache. What does that have to do with anything? Why are you wasting my time? He says, no, 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 hang on. How do you know that you had a toothache? What do you mean? I, I, I had a toothache. I I know I had a toothache. He's like, but did you ever talk to your toothache? No, I never talked to my toothache. I'm not a crazy person. Stop wasting my time. Well, wait, sir. Did you ever hear your toothache talk back to you? No, I never heard my toothache. Son, I'm an educated man. Stop wasting my time. He said, well, look, if, if your toothache never talked to you, you never talked to your toothache, I don't believe you that you had a toothache. Your toothache did not exist. 
By this time, the man was frustrated. He put his paper down and he said, Look, son, I know that I had a toothache. I woke up in the middle of the night. I was in agony. I had so much pain. I've experienced that toothache. You cannot tell me that I didn't have a toothache because I experienced it for myself. And the boy crossed his arms and he said, Well, sir, that's how I know that my God is real because I have experienced Him for myself. And I just want that for you too. Friends, the greatest witness we can bear is that we have had personal contact with Jesus. That we have experienced Him. Like the testimony that Zalata shared with us last week about how God stepped into her life. How God showed up. How God brought her that Bible. All the different ways that God was reaching out to her. I can't deny that God is real when I see how God has reached somebody like Zalata. But here's the thing. There's a lot more Zalatas out there. Those who have grown up with atheist parents. Those who are going to atheist schools. Those who don't know Jesus for themselves. I remember one night I was feeling kind of frustrated. There were some different things going on in my life and some people were were really suffering and going through things that I didn't like to see. And I was talking to God one evening and I said, God, why don't you just put it all to an end? Have you wondered that before? God, why don't you just wrap it all up? God, you know what people are going to decide, whether they want to accept you or not. God, why don't you just put it all to an end and come back and take us home? I'm tired. I want to go home. I want to go to heaven. And as I was there pouring out my heart to God, all of a sudden the thought came to me strongly, do you realize how selfish you're being right now? I thought, no, I, I just want you to come back and take us to heaven. Well, how is that selfish? What, what's wrong with that? I, I just want people not to be in agony anymore. And then it suddenly hit me. It was like God was saying to me, do you know what I go through each and every day? Do you know how there are 7 billion people out there Seven billion people who are going through all kinds of pain. I began to think about my own wife. Now when Leah is in pain, when she's sick, when she's going through something difficult, it breaks my heart. You know how it is. When somebody that you love is going through something, it it tears you up inside. It's like, I remember telling her one time, I wish that you could not be sick and I could be sick because this is no fun. (laughs) I, I don't like seeing you sick. It's, it's not fun to see somebody that we love going through something. Not fun to see somebody that we know well going through something. But there's a lot of people out there in the hospital right now that I don't even know their name, I don't know their situations, and I'm sad that they're there, but it's really not that big a deal to me. It really doesn't break my heart like it would if Leah was there. And then I suddenly realized that we serve a God who says, I know the number of hairs that are on your head. A God who said, I would come down from heaven just to die for for just one lost child. A God who knows each and every person and loves each and every one of the seven billion people out there more than I love Leah. A God who each and every day when 
people wake up and they're going through suffering, they're going through difficult times, they're, they're facing all kinds of problems in their life, they're miserable because they don't have the joy of knowing Jesus in their lives. And he feels it all. That is weighing Jesus down. You and I can only experience our own suffering and maybe those who are close to us, but the God of the universe day in and day out is bearing the agony of thousands and thousands of souls who don't know Him. Thousands of of children who are being abused. Thousands of children who are starving to death. And, And God is feeling all of it. And yet He lets time go on for one more day despite the agony that this must cause his heart. To know that Jesus is willing to go through all of that just so that you and I can have a little bit more time to tell a few more people the good news of the gospel so that someone else can be with him throughout eternity. He's willing to continue suffering, to continue going through the agony of seeing this planet in such distress just so that somebody else can have that opportunity to follow him. I realized how selfish it is for me to want things to end right away, to want to see bad things happen on the planet so that the time can come to an end and that Jesus can come back. Because more than anything, I love Jesus. And I want to be able to see people in heaven because it tells us in Isaiah 53 that one day Jesus will see of His reward and be satisfied. He'll see those souls who have been saved and it's all going to be worth it for Jesus. All the agony that He went through on the cross, all that He's going through right now is Hebrews 7.25 tells us that He is ever living to make intercession for us so that we could have salvation. All that Jesus is going through right now, it's all going to be worth it one day when people are saved in His kingdom. And here's the thing, you and I have the opportunity right now like we will never have again. You might have a saving relationship with Jesus right now. Sitting here, you, you may know Jesus, you may know all about the Bible, you, you may know that he's coming back to take you home. And that's wonderful. We should have the joy of salvation in our lives. We should have the assurance of salvation knowing that Jesus is our Savior. But throughout all of eternity, you and I, knowing that Jesus is coming back for us, are going to be able to enjoy every good thing that there is in heaven. I know in Sabbath school we used to talk about riding on dolphins and riding on whales and that mansion that's waiting for us. And can you imagine how wonderful heaven's going to be? And 10,000 years from now, this small amount of time that we're here on this planet is going to seem like nothing to us. We're going to be able to enjoy every good gift that heaven has. But there is no time like today when we will be able to be heroes for Jesus, martyrs for Jesus, to give our lives as witnesses for Jesus. There's no time like today when when Jesus is desperately wanting for somebody to stand up and be a witness. There's no time like today A thousand years from now, we will probably all be in heaven enjoying the good gifts of heaven and yet, at that point, there will no longer be the opportunity to share the gospel with anyone. 
There will no longer be the opportunity for somebody to be saved because it will have come to an end. But today, you and I have the opportunity. And so often I'm distracted by so many different things. I want to go have a good time. I want to enjoy life. I want all the good things that there are in life. But what does that compare to eternity? What does that compare to being a witness now? What does it compare to just telling one more person about Jesus? To being able to bear witness to just one more person so that that person can fall in love with the Jesus that I know and have the joy of knowing Jesus for themselves. That, to me, is more valuable than anything else. But I want it to be so much more valuable. So often I can go through my day and I'm rushing through the grocery store, rush past that grocery clerk that I could share a smile with her. I could share a glow track that our glow ministries has with her that tells her about the love of Jesus. I could share more and I want to share more. Going back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus promises that we will be made witnesses. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I want to claim this promise. How about you? I want to claim this promise that Jesus is going to make me a witness. That He's going to make you a witness through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that I can come up with. I can't learn enough possibly to be able to convince every person to have this heart relationship with Jesus. But the Holy Spirit can come in and use that knowledge, that important truth that we learn from the Bible. He can use all of that and turn me into a powerful witness that my neighbors can't deny, that my family can't deny, as I have the experience that John has. And I can say, I've tasted it. I've seen it. I've handled it. I've felt it. I know that Jesus is real. I've had a real experience with Jesus. Don't you want to know Jesus too? There's nothing more powerful than a personal witness for Jesus. And the promise is, you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what is your Jerusalem? I want you to think about this. What is, what is Jerusalem for you and I? For the disciples, that was the place that was closest to home for them. That's where they were at. Jesus says, I'm going to make you a witness right there in Jerusalem. And then I'm going to make you a witness in Judea, that wider area, a little bit further out. And then I'm even going to make you a witness to those dreaded Samaritans. But not only that, I'm going to make you a witness to the ends of the earth. You're worried about times and seasons. You're worried about when I'm going to set up this kingdom. What I want for you to do is to start with your inner circle and be a witness. And to start with that next circle out and allow the Holy Spirit to witness through you until that circle keeps expanding and the love of Jesus spreads throughout the entire world. Jesus wants for you and I to be witnesses. I want you to take out, if you have in your bulletin or even just a, a scratch piece of paper, there's sermon notes in your bulletin. You can take it out if you have a pen. And I want you to write down just three things. Put at the top a line that says, Jerusalem. And I want you to be praying about what is my Jerusalem? What is that sphere of influence that's closest to me that Jesus wants for me to reach? That could be your, we have a slide here, our family maybe. It could be our 
our friends. It could be even in our church family. There might be people that you recognize that you want to be a witness to even right here in the church or maybe in your family, those closest to you that you say, I just want to be a witness to them to help them have a deeper relationship with Jesus. But God doesn't want you to stop there. Put a a line further down and it's Judea. And this can be your neighbors, your coworkers, your maybe a store clerk, maybe the person that cuts your hair. I don't know who this might be, but it's that circle that's a little bit farther out. Those people that you know, that you contact, that you have associated with, but that need to know Jesus for themselves. And then there's Samaria. That's the larger community. You know, we have 30,000 people almost in Paso Robles and 30,000 almost in Atascadero and 7,000 plus in Templeton here. And I don't know a lot of those people, but I want them all to have the chance to have a deeper walk with Jesus, to know Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I want to be able to share with them about the Sabbath in a way that I'm able to say, I've experienced the Sabbath and the rest that it brings, how it, how it teaches me about God as my creator, how it teaches me about God as my savior. I want to be able to share that with them in a way that is a true witness. So in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, there's 7 billion people out there. You know that there has not been a time in the planet's history like now when there are as many lost people out there as there are today. The population of the planet wasn't near this large when Jesus was here, when the apostles were going out preaching. You and I, God wants to do greater things through you than he did through the apostle Paul. Because there is a greater world to reach out there. There are more souls to be saved than when Paul went on his missionary journeys. God wants to do incredible things through you. So I want just personally, and I want to challenge you to take the time and make a list. Write down actual names, maybe this afternoon, of people that you want for God to make you a witness to. In these different spheres of influence, in those widening circles around you. Ask God to give you specific people. Lay them on your heart. People that you want for Him to reach through you. And come talk to myself or to one of the elders or to Heidi Marku, our cross trainer. She's going to be coming in tomorrow. She's here just to help you figure out ways that you can creatively reach out to the people around you. That's what we're here for. So if you're thinking, I don't know how to to invite my neighbors over and have dinner with them, or I don't know how to invite this person to have a Bible study, or I don't know how to reach these people, come talk to us. That's what this church family is for, is to help us to reach the people around us, to help us to become witnesses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the incredible privilege of becoming witnesses. We want to be martyrs for you. We want to represent you. We want to be able to have such a rich and living, deep relationship with you that that we have something to share with the world out there. And Lord, we want our hearts to break for those in our circles of influence, those that are closest to us and those that are maybe a little disconnected from us. We want to be bright, shining lights for you, Jesus. But we recognize that we can't do this on our own. What we need 
is the same thing that the disciples needed. We need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Please come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with that power that will make us witnesses. Please pour out your Holy Spirit on us today, I pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.